attention to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Friends, we're going to uh, look this morning at the first two verses. 1 Timothy chapter 1 beginning at verse 1 and verse 2. And friends, we will begin our study of this wonderful pastoral epistle together. Friends, I have entitled this morning's sermon, Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Dear friends, the Word of God says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Shall we pray together? Holy Father, we come before you this morning humbly, longing to be fed from the pastor of your word. Lord, we we thank you for your promise that, Lord, you will continue to enrich your church. You will continue to feed her upon Christ and upon the word of your grace. Father, we pray that you would help us now. O Spirit, come and guard us from error. O Spirit, please help us to understand the truth herein. Lord, to see your glory, uh, to see ourselves as we are. And Lord, we pray that you would transform us by the truth, that we might love, serve, worship Christ. Father, we ask your blessing in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we are endeavoring to walk through this pastoral epistle. And friends, at the outset, we know something of the author. His name is Paul. And you know the Apostle Paul. Friends, he is the theologian uh, of the New Testament. He is the one who has given to us the bulk of the uh, doctrine. As far as we're looking at, you know, Romans and we're looking at First and Second Corinthians and Ephesians and Philippians, uh, Paul had a titanic mind. Uh, he had something the equivalent of two PhDs. This was the Paul who was uh, was raised as a Pharisee. Uh, he grew up. He was a he was a Jew, uh, but he lived outside of Judea. He lived in. Uh, Tarsus, and he lived there, and he grew up, but he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. And it was there in Jerusalem that he sat at the feet of the greatest rabbis of the first century. Paul was a brilliant man. He was, he had a, a mind to grasp uh, the word of God, and and he even tells us in some of his letters that he was advancing in Judaism far beyond his own generation. He was so zealous for the traditions of his fathers. And so this is Paul the student, Paul who is pouring over the word of God, Paul who has has memorized essentially the entire Old Testament. This Paul then hears of these followers of the way, these folks who are believing that this Jesus of Nazareth really is the promised Messiah of God. And Paul hates them. He hates what they stand for. He despises the doctrine that they preach. And he sets himself on a course to stamp out the nascent Christian church. Friends, this Paul, who is also known as Saul, was public enemy number one. 
for the believers in the very first years of the church. This was the same Saul, Paul, who stood before uh, all of the mob and held the coats of the men as they stoned Stephen to death. And remember, Stephen was giving testimony to the Jews that Jesus was the promised Christ. Well, we see that this Saul, filled with rage, even went to the council in Jerusalem. He went to the high priest and he asked for letters. He asked for uh, permission to go to Damascus, to go to this foreign city and to find those who were followers of the way and to bring them bound in chains back to Jerusalem. Paul was a zealot. Paul played for keeps. Paul was a man who was zealous for God in his own mind. But as he says, refusing to submit to God's righteousness and seeking to establish his own, he would not submit to God's righteousness, which is in Jesus Christ. But then remember, friends, Jesus Christ met Paul on that road to Damascus and broke him. Remember, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goad. What Jesus Christ was saying to Paul was, Paul, when you persecute one of my people, you are persecuting me. When you persecute a believer, you are persecuting me. You're touching my body. You are assaulting me by assaulting those who belong to me. And he says, Paul, you're like an angry ox in the goad. You're like an ox tied to the cart and you're getting mad and angry and so you kick against that axe behind the cart and it hurts you and you're bleeding but you keep kicking against this blade becoming more and more bloody and more and more enraged. That was the picture of Paul. He was like an angry bull filled with hatred and hostility to Christ and His church. But God saved him. God saved him Christ redeemed him. And remember what he said to Ananias. He said, he is a chosen vessel of mine to bring my name before the Gentiles. And then we see Paul as the converted man, born again, filled with the Holy Spirit. And now he is the missionary par excellence. He is going forth across the Mediterranean, planting churches, doing all kinds of marvelous ministry. Well, where we find Paul in 1 Timothy is remember at the end of Acts, he's come to Rome. And he's been under house arrest for two years. He's been preaching the gospel in Rome. No one hindering him. Many have come to believe the gospel there in Rome. He stood before Nero. And Nero has let him go. Nero has let him go from this first arrest. So Paul now has a little bit of freedom. And this may have been the time when he got to go to Spain and did some other ministry. But this is before his final imprisonment. So Paul is writing from an unknown location. But he is going about and he is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. So this is Paul. This is Paul. And notice again, he announces that he is the author and he is, he has authority. Look again, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. So the authority of Paul is not because of his own brilliance, though he was quite smart and well-trained and well-skilled, His authority was because he is an apostle. Now, friends, remember that that apostle, uh, it means one who is sent, one who is commissioned, one who is 
given authority to speak in the name of the one who has sent him. So, friends, the word of the apostle is the word of the one who sent him. So when Paul speaks in the scriptures, he is speaking nothing less than the word of Christ. So, friends, what that means, first of all, for us as a church, is that we must submit to the word of God and to the word of Paul. Not because it's Paul's words in and of themselves, but because when Paul speaks, we have Christ speaking to us through his servant Paul. Now, friends, again, this leads us to talk a little bit about the doctrine of inspiration. How do we, how do we understand this Bible? Well, friends, on the one hand, this Bible is the Word of God. It is God's Word. It is breathed out by God, Paul will say in 2 Timothy. It is breathed out by Him. But God has chosen to speak His Word through particular human authors. And so, friends, when His Word comes, it comes via the human instrumentality of an author like Paul or John or Mark or Luke. And we know that the Spirit comes and He blows and He takes this Word. And so, friends, as Paul is putting his pen to the paper and he's writing, he is writing exactly what he wants to write. The Word is in his mind. That Word is in his heart. But as it is coming out, the Spirit is so superintending and guiding that Word that it is the Word of God that Paul is speaking. So... God is keeping his servant from error, guarding him from speaking falsehood. And we are reminded that this is the very lively word of God. So friends, let me ask you a question. How do you respond to Scripture? What is your view of the Bible? Now friends, I venture to guess if you're here today, you have a pretty good estimate of the Bible. Unbelievers... And, and even those that are hostile to the Christian faith are most welcome to come and worship with us. But my guess is that if you're here today, you have a high regard for the Bible. In fact, I'm willing to bet that you have several at home. Maybe you have a couple on a bookshelf. Maybe you have a couple on your nightstand. But friends, it's one thing to have God's Word, to have that treasure and possession. And, and make no mistake, friends, there are Christians all over the world who don't have their own copy of God's Word in their own language. That is a treasure. Let us never forget it's a treasure to read, it's a treasure to study, to have God's Word. But friends, it's one thing to have the Word, and it's another thing to submit to the Word, to treasure the Word of God, to see that the Word of God reveals all the glory of God in Jesus Christ, and that it is this Word which is the final authority that guides, that directs, that regulates our faith and practice. Friends, this is that Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura. The word of God alone is the final authority for faith and practice. So friends, the Christian has a humble attitude when he comes to the word of God. He doesn't sit in judgment over it. But he comes most humbly before the Lord of glory and says, speak, O Lord, for your servant hears. There is a posture of humility, a God-given attitude of reverence 
that the true believer has for this Bible. He treasures it because it is the word of his Father. He delights in it, for it is the word of his Lord Christ. He savors it, for it is the Spirit's own word which has been given to him. Friends, today, perhaps, you don't have much of a joy in studying God's word. Maybe you did in time past when you were younger or had more time or there were other things in your life. But perhaps today, friends, your your heart has grown cold and you say, Clay, I just don't have the same love for the scriptures that I used to. I don't enjoy them the way that I used to. Friend, let me encourage you to cry out to God to change your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and to awaken you to see the joy of knowing God in his word. Ask the Lord of glory to to cause you to taste and see that He is good. And friends, when we read and study, we're submitting to the truth. Because even as we read Paul here, friends, it's not simply the word of the theologian Paul. It is the word of God. It is the word of Christ delivered to us by His servant. So we see that He is an apostle. And notice the juxtaposition here. I want you to see how Paul in his writing says Christ Jesus. Sometimes Paul will say Jesus Christ, and other times Paul will say Christ Jesus. Now, friends, remember, Christ um, is a, uh, it's not a last name, even though sometimes we kind of think of it as a last name. It's really a title. Christ, or Christos, is the translation of the Hebrew title Messiah, which means anointed one. And friends, in the history of redemption, God would appoint and he would anoint certain people and give to them an office, a calling or a vocation. And we see that the supreme anointed one in whom all God's promises are fulfilled is the, in the Old Testament, the coming Messiah who is Jesus. So friends, in Christ, we have the union of the offices. As Christ, Jesus is the prophet, the greatest of all prophets, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than Daniel, greater than any of the prophets of old, because he is the one who is, in fact, the apostle sent from the Father. He is the supreme self-disclosure of God, and he is not only the Object. He not only speaks in regard to the word of God, but he himself is the fulfillment of the word of God. So he is the prophet greater than Moses, whose word the people must hear. Jesus is also the priest, a great high priest, greater than Aaron, greater than all the sons of Aaron, because Jesus lives forever. Having died upon the cross and risen again on the third day, Jesus Christ lives forever and he continues to be our mediator, to be our representative to God, to be the one who has even offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins. He is the priest, the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Third, Jesus as the Christ holds the office of the He is prophet, priest, and king. He's a king, friends. After the line and lineage of David. Friends, God kept his promise to David. 
A thousand years before the birth of Christ, God said to David, David, I will bless you. I will build your house. Your dynasty will endure. The throne of your kingdom will not be cast down. David, one of your sons will sit on your throne forever. There was a son of David coming. And the believers of old longed for that son of David to come. A son greater than Solomon. A son greater than Hezekiah. A son who would mediate the reign of God and redemption in grace and mercy. A righteous king who would lord and and rule over God's people forever. The prince of peace. The lord of lords. The king of kings. Jesus is that king. So friends, when we see Christ, think of it almost as a, well, like a grand tapestry. A grand portrait of who Jesus is. And all of these threads, all these, all of these different strands of promise being woven together until we have this beautiful portrait of who Jesus is. Friends, again, perhaps today you struggle reading your Bibles. And perhaps one of the hardest places for you to study is the Old Testament. Maybe you get to Leviticus. Maybe you get to some of the details of the sacrificial system and you go, I can't understand anything about this. It's so archaic. It's so foreign to me. Friend, let me give you my (laughs) my chief word of encouragement. Look for Jesus. Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament and he is front and center in Leviticus as a sacrifice for sins, as the holy priest and king. So friends, take the New Testament, see how the apostles like Paul have unpacked for us the promises of God and how God is fulfilling that promise in His Son Jesus. And they go back to the Old Testament and say, okay, I see it. Moses is preparing me to see the ministry of Christ. David is preparing me to see something of the reign and rule of Jesus. Wow, Jesus, you are amazing in all of your glory and grace. Friends, that's what makes studying the scriptures so exciting. Pulling those threads together and letting us see more of the beauty of our king. So Jesus is an apostle of Christ Jesus. But but notice again in that first verse that Paul is saying, but don't take, you know, I'm not an apostle just because I say I'm an apostle. He has been appointed to be an apostle. He's not self-appointed. He didn't uh, invent this office for himself, but he has been called to be an apostle by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So by the command. So again, friends, we we speak in military terms. Uh, A general is appointed to a certain part of the army, and he receives his command. He receives his office. He receives his responsibilities and troops and all that goes with that command. And so here we're saying it's by the authority, the supreme authority, which is vested in the triune God. The ultimate supreme power and authority that belongs to God himself, that is the source of Paul's authority. Friends, all authority on earth has been given by God. That's what Romans 13 tells us. There's no authority that exists in this world except which has been instituted by God. 
So authority exists in the home. Authority exists in the church. Authority exists in the nations. And friends, there are these realms of authority. But friends, remember, no one is an autocrat. No one is one who is a law unto himself, able to rule and govern himself as he wishes. Because because all authority is given by God, all authority is accountable to God. Emperors are accountable to God. Kings are accountable to God. Billionaires are accountable to God. I'm accountable to God. You're accountable to God as a father, as a mother, as a son, as a daughter, as an employer, as an employee. Friends, all authority is from God and all authority is responsible to God. And God is sovereign over all that authority, friends. So this is the world that God has made. And here we are seeing that that authority of Paul comes from the very top. It's from the triune God. And notice that, friends, he he describes the Father as God our Savior. Oh, friends, what a a beautiful description. Paul, speaking under the Holy Spirit, the gospel is... It's part of the warp and wolf. It's, it's not just something that, that gets put on a shelf. It's, you know, it's not just like, okay, you believe the gospel and then get busy with Christian living. Paul says, no, the gospel informs, equips, empowers how you as a Christian daily think of who you are in Christ and your relationship with God. And he says to us, remember your Father in heaven as God Our Savior, the God who saves. Well, friends, we may ask the question then. If we have a Savior, from what have we been saved from? Friends, we we cannot understand what salvation means unless we have a real clear assessment of the danger, of the peril. Friends, half of the treatment for a disease is an accurate diagnosis. Before you can prescribe the remedy, you have to be able to diagnose what's the problem. What's gone wrong? What is bad that needs to be fixed? And friends, the Bible tells us throughout, salvation could be understood in a few different ways. For example, salvation in the Old Testament can be understood as a deliverance from some disease, such as Hezekiah's uh, disease, or some tragic calamity, like a famine in Egypt. There's a sense of deliverance. God is said to have delivered his people when he rescued them from the power of Pharaoh, when he delivered them from the power of the, of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And so we can speak of salvation in those sense. But friends, there's that ultimate sense of salvation. What does God save us from? Does He save us simply from hang-ups? Does He save us from bad choices and mistakes? Does He save us from an empty, purposeless life? Well, friends, in the Gospel, those things do come. When you're in Christ, friends, you have purpose. There is meaning to your life. There is joy. There is freedom in Christ Jesus from the power of sin and from the entanglement of sin. Friends, these are the effects 
the fruit of our redemption and our salvation in Christ. But I ask again, from what or from whom does God save us? His name is Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. But what is it about the sins that brings a need for redemption? Well, it is the wrath of God. Friends, ultimately, God in Christ Jesus saves us from Himself. He delivers us from His own just judgment. He rescues us from His own righteous wrath. In grace, in His mercy, He saves us from the very hell that we deserve. God saves. And God alone. Friends, well, how does He save? Well, as Paul has preached, it is in Christ Jesus, friends. Our Lord Jesus says He came, He lived and died, and He rose again. Friends, when Jesus was there on the cross... The Father reckoned to Christ our sin, our transgression, our guilt, every sin that you and I as believers would ever commit, God the Father put into Jesus' account, like a bank transfer. He put that debt of sin on His Son. And so as Jesus was there upon Calvary, as His Life was being offered up to God by the Holy Spirit. He received our sin and He bore our curse. As it is written, Cursed be every man who is hanged upon a tree. There upon the cross, Jesus Christ became accursed for us. For by a single offering, He, Christ Jesus, made perfect for all time those who are being sanctified. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus. The condemnation of hell that we deserve was set upon our Savior. God saves us from His own wrath by punishing Christ in our place. By slaying His Son, you and I were spared an eternity of hell. Friends, that's the text of our Father's love. He's saved us from the wrath to come, but He's also delivered us from the domination of sin. Friend, before you were born again, you were a slave to sin. You were a child of wrath. We were children of darkness. Remember Jesus, as He's talking, He says to these religious people, He says, you are of your father the devil because you do your devil's, your devilish father's works. Friends, we were delivered from The domination of sin. Sin's reign was broken when we were born again and came by faith to Christ. So not only was sin's penalty dealt with, but its power was broken in our lives. And one day, friends, God promises you that in Christ, you will be completely saved from the presence of sin. What a joy that will be, friend. One day you will never, ever again, have any temptation, any desire to do evil. Your heart will be 100% pure unto God. Your affections will be so trained upon the Lord Jesus that you can look at all the vanities of sin and wickedness in the world and you can count them as utter rubbish. Friend, one day, 
You will love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. That is the promise of God, your Savior, to you. In Christ, there is a full and perfect salvation. So Paul says, the gospel is not simply something you believe once and then put aside. This is part of how you live the Christian life. Remember, your Father in heaven is your Savior, and Christ Jesus is your hope. Our hope. Remember, notice the communal there, friends. It's not just me, the individual. It's us as the church. Friends, as we live the Christian life, we must always be mindful of our brothers and sisters, admonishing one another, encouraging one another to look up to Christ. Friends, God saves His people one at a time. The new birth is His work where He comes and He gives life. But when He saves... He never leaves His people by themselves. He always grafts them into Christ. He always puts them in His family. We are joined together. So friends, Christian life is not a lone wolf venture. It's family life. It's life and community. It's us sharing with one another, bearing with one another, admonishing one another. Look up to God, your Savior. Look to Christ Jesus, our hope. And friends, you've heard us talk about this hope many times. Remember, hope in biblical categories is not a desire, simply a desire or a wish or an aspiration. I've given you this example, but friends, you may come to me and you say, Clay, do you think that the Razorbacks are going to go to the College World Series? And I may say, well, I sure hope so. But right now, it doesn't look so good. Hope, friends, is not that kind of aspiration, not a wishful thinking. Hope in biblical categories is faith looking to the future with confidence. It is the trusting of the believer in the promises of God. It is us saying by the Spirit of God, Lord, you have promised and you will do. God said it. That settles it. God promised It's done. Friends, the resurrection, therefore, is certain. God has proven it by raising His own Son from the dead, and we know that that will come because God has promised to us a resurrection. God has promised to us a future. Our hope, friends, is grounded in the unchangeable, infallible, sovereign God who says, trust me and believe my promises. So, friends, what do you do when you doubt? Friends, doubt creeps in our minds all the time. Trial can cause doubt to creep in our minds. Pain, failure, sin. All manner of things can creep in our life. And we can begin to say, Lord, will you really keep your promise to me? Lord, can I really trust Friends, that's what the enemy does. Remember when the enemy came to Eve in the garden and when he came to the Lord Jesus in the wilderness, his principal line of attack was on the trustworthiness of the Word of God. Are you the Son of God? If you are the Son of God, Jesus, can you really trust your Father? Can you really trust God's Word? Well, can you? Throw yourself down from the temple. Turn these loaves, these stones into loaves of bread. Friends, 
Hope is anchored in Christ. Hope, our hope, is anchored in the gospel of His grace. When we doubt, when we worry, when we fret, the remedy is to come back to this Bible, to come back under the preaching and teaching of His Word, to gather in community with the saints so that we can rehearse these promises again. Yes, my Lord is faithful. Yes, my Lord is true. Yes, my Lord has never broken a promise to me, and He never will, because hope is grounded on the certainty of God's promise. Friend, maybe today you don't have that hope for the future. Maybe you're sitting there and you you think, well, I don't know what will happen to me when I die. I hope that I'll go to heaven. I hope that God will accept me. Friends, today, remember, the gospel declares this is the day of salvation. If you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart, but come to Christ. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Friends, there is hope for you. In Jesus Christ, the Savior. So, friend, I pray that you are trusting in him. Well, here in verse 2, we have the recipient. To whom is Paul writing? Well, in one sense, he's writing to the church in all ages. But he has a particular audience in mind, and that is one precious individual, his dear friend and companion, to Timothy. Oh, Timothy. Paul loves this man, and this man loves him. Friends, this is another beautiful portrait of godly friendship. You know, friend, as men, sometimes it's very hard for us to have friends. And even ladies struggle with having friendships. But friends, in the Bible, we have these beautiful portraits of godly friendship. We even see Christ in his friendship with his disciples. But, but here, Paul and Timothy have such a beautiful relationship of friendship and also of, of laboring together in the ministry. You know, Paul found this Man, Timothy, and he was well spoken of by the church. And, and, and Paul has taken Timothy along with him from place to place. And now his assessment of Timothy is, you are my true child in the faith. Friends, Paul likes to, to talk in this way of, of, of him being a father and those to whom he has shared the gospel who have been born again as his children. And this isn't, you know, sometimes... We might get in our minds that Paul is a little proud of that, but that's not what he means. Friends, sometimes in the scriptures, this sense of a son or being a child is in reference not to biology, but to spirituality. Uh, That's why Jesus can say, you know, call no man father. What he's meaning is you you take the word of men and you try it by the scripture of God. You, You try it back by the word of God. But friends, we are the sons of those whom we follow, uh, of those teachers, of those leaders that are before us, whose way of life we are called to emulate, uh, whose doctrine we are receiving and, and we are learning from, we have spiritual fathers. And for that case, spiritual mothers. And friends, that's good because that's how God designed us to be. You, you know, friends, we never grow too old to learn. We never mature so much in the faith that we cannot seek and ought not to seek someone who can instruct us, from whom we can learn, from who can encourage us. And here Paul says of Timothy, you are my true child in the faith. I know in truth that you've been born again. You've been faithful to the gospel that I've entrusted to you. 
I've seen the Lord use and work in you, dear Timothy. You are my true child in the faith. That is the gospel message. Notice again that it's in the faith. So there's a, there's a sense of Paul's paternity to Timothy, that he is a spiritual father and Timothy is his spiritual son because they are in the faith. And this is the same way that uh, Jude will use it. He says, I wanted to write to you uh, considering our, about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to you to write calling upon you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That body of teaching, that true sound doctrine. Friends, again, you and I live in a world where doctrine, especially in the church, is, somehow, is sometimes put down. Where we say, well, we don't, we don't need to have real deep understanding of the teaching of the Word of God. What's most important in the Christian life is relationships. And we know that doctrine divides and that sometimes when we really dive into it, there can be lots of division and splintering and stuff. But friends, remember, this Bible is doctrine. This Bible is chock full of teaching of truth for you so that you may know God and love Christ and follow Him. Friends, the truth of God, the faith, doesn't divide. It unites It brings true unity because it is a unity in the Lord Jesus, not a carnal peace that is devoid of the truth. Paul says this faith is worth believing, contending for, continuing to preach and to hold to. As I've told you, doctrine directs our devotion That is, when we know God as He is in His Word, then He trains us by His Spirit to love and serve Him. And it's that same doctrine that drives doxology. Because we cannot worship a God we don't know. We can't delight in Christ Jesus. If we know little about Christ, if we know little about our Father, then we will worship Him little. We'll serve Him little. We'll enjoy Him little. But friends, it's as God begins to open our eyes and enlarge our hearts by this faith, by this Word, that we love and worship Him more. So Paul is saying to Timothy, you are my true child in the faith. I delight in you. You and I are one in mission, one in purpose. And then finally, in closing, he gives a a very brief blessing. It's a trifold blessing. Three blessings that Paul pronounces on Timothy. He says, grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. Now, friends, you you might look at this and we might say, well, Paul's just sort of saying, you know, these are kind words. These are kind of like when you write a letter, you say sincerely or, you know, you have a little postscript at the end. But again, friends, remember, for Paul, the gospel informs not just how you enter into the kingdom of God, but how, as you, how you live as children of your Father in heaven. And so what he's saying is, in the gospel, there is grace. In the gospel, there is mercy and peace. And it is sourced in the same triune God, God our Father, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's think in the time we have, let's think for a little bit about all of these facets. So 
I want you to imagine, friends, this morning a diamond. And the diamond is Christ. The diamond is the glory of the Son of God. And when Paul says grace, what he is speaking of is God's free and unmerited favor. God doing for man what man cannot do for himself. This is what God gives to you in Christ. Friends, what we deserve is nothing. We don't deserve a single thing. Friends, it's grace that you and I got up from our beds this morning. It's grace that we enjoyed a good breakfast. It's grace that we're going to have lunch here in a few minutes. But friends, this free and unmerited favor of God, this special grace, this saving grace is seen in Christ and how God not only set His love upon us before the world began, but how in and by His Spirit He called us to Christ. He gave to us the gift of faith. He brought us most eagerly and willingly to the Savior. Grace upon grace, that is what comes to us from our Father in Christ. Mercy. Mercy, friends, is the setting aside of just condemnation. Friends, we rightly deserve help for our sin. You know, friends, sometimes we think our sin, and we look at it and we think, well, you know, some sin is serious and some is not so much. And we do know that God sees our intentions and He sees the way that they work themselves out and the damage that they do. But friends, remember, in your catalog of sin, you name the sin that you think is the least despised, the, the, the most insignificant sin that you and I have committed. And friend, I tell you that that sin is still worthy of an eternity of hell. Because, friend, what is behind that sin is nothing less than treason. Nothing short of rebellion against the Lord of glory. Because, friends, when we sin, if we say, for example, we, we steal a loaf of bread from the grocer, the grand scheme of things, that's not a bad deal. In fact, you know, it, it doesn't seem like a big deal. The Scriptures even say people don't despise a thief when he steals bread because he's hungry, but he's going to pay it back. But, friends, when we steal something, we are not only depriving our neighbor of his goods, but we're saying, God My creator who gave this possession to my neighbor, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you say. I want to live my life on my terms in my own way. It's like us taking a big fist and raising it up to God and saying, God, I am God, not you in my life. Friend, until we can understand that that is the root of our sin problem, it's not just bad behavior. It's not just bad deeds and work. Our sin problem is a heart problem. It's a moral problem. It's an attitude problem. Unless or until we're born again, friends, we are rebels against God. But in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, God says to you, O sinner who have come to my son by faith, I give you mercy. I give you what you don't deserve. I have set aside that just condemnation of hell because I have punished my son in your place. And finally, we have peace. Friends, there's no need for peace if everybody's one and there's harmony. But friends, peace is good news to warring parties. And we are at war with God by nature. We are rebels. And we have set ourselves on a course of civil war against the Lord of glory. 
But now in Christ, we have peace. And this again is from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, friends, in closing, Paul is setting forth for us this course, this apostolic teaching and exhortation to Timothy. And I pray that, friends, as we are examining this letter together, that we will see how the gospel produces in the life of God's people folks that love Christ and love His people and are eagerly serving Him in the world. Because the fruit of this gospel is holiness unto the Lord. And Paul is here in the very first verses reminding us of that central verity. So friends, let's pray. Father, we thank You that in Christ Jesus we do have such a blessed hope. Lord, we pray in this week to come, help us to meditate on all of these riches that are in Christ, the grace, mercy, and peace which you have given to us. Father, we pray that you would help us to submit to the lordship, the kingship of Christ, under whose reign for us there is joy in life. Father, please forgive us of our hardness of heart. Oh, Lord, we are a people who follow afar off, We are a people whose idols cling so closely to us. Father, we so often inflate ourselves and our own performance. Therefore, deflate you, the Savior. Father, we pray, forgive us. Oh, Lord, cleanse our hearts, renew our minds, and by this word of truth, transform us, dear Father, into the likeness of your Son, and send us forth by your Spirit, that we might serve you with zeal and joy in the world. Father, have mercy on your people this day, we pray, for Christ's sake. 